Never misses Gus's old man. Right on cue. Too bad, honey. Nothing's going wrong this time. Lorelei, the old boy is not about to let you commit matrimony with his son. I think he'd rather shove him down an elevator shaft. Dorothy, I'm sailing on Saturday with or without Mr. Esmond. And I'm not coming back from Europe until he comes and gets me. When we're in France, where his father can't phone him twice a day. Well, Gus will never let you go alone. Sometimes Mr. Esmond finds it very difficult to say no to me. Well, that's very possible. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. I'm Emma and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 203, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And welcome back to Verbal Diorama, or welcome to Verbal Diorama, whether you're a brand new listener to this podcast, whether you are a regular returning listener, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I'm delighted to have you here. And this is a movie that I've wanted to talk about for a little while. So... I'm happy to have you here for the history and legacy of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And as always, I'm delighted that you've chosen to listen to this little podcast uh, above all of the other podcasts that are no doubt taking space in your podcast app. There are a lot of podcasts out there and genuinely, I'm always blown away by how many of you choose to listen to this podcast. Even after four years and 200 plus episodes, it still completely blows my mind. So. Thank you so much for coming back yet again. And also, thank you for the wonderful reception to the previous episodes of this podcast. So, most recently, I've done episodes on Reign of Fire and also a double episode on Hot Rod and Pop Star Never Stop, Never Stopping. And Reign of Fire was especially popular. And I actually think it's now overtaken The Wizard of Oz in terms of downloads, which is bizarre, right? When you think about it, The Wizard of Oz this huge cinematic behemoth versus these huge cinematic behemoth dragons that came out in 2006. And somehow, Reign of Fire has been slightly more popular as far as episodes of this podcast go. I will always be amazed at what is popular on this podcast and what is not popular on this podcast. Just as an example, Robin Hood Men in Tights, still ridiculously popular on this podcast. I don't know why, but I'm not complaining. And it's weird as well, especially when you look at, we went back in time 84 years for The Wizard of Oz. It's got 84 years of history and legacy in that movie. And when I decided I was going to do The Wizard of Oz for the 200th episode, also in the back of my mind was Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And now when I did The Wizard of Oz, I did say that was the only movie in contention for the 200th episode. And it genuinely was. But for some reason, I kept thinking about Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And then I realised that Gentlemen Prefer Blondes celebrates its 70th birthday this year. And additionally, I realised that sometimes the movies that I feature on this podcast can have a very masculine, male leaning to them. I mean, that is Hollywood just in general. But I wanted to focus a little this month on women in film. And so what better movie to start with than Marilyn Monroe, Jane Russell, their comedic timing, the sexy knowingness, the winking femininity, at the very core of gentlemen prefer blondes. So let's not beat around the bush, let's jump straight into the trailer for gentlemen prefer blondes. <laughs> Just two little girls from Little Rock. We lived on the wrong side of the tracks. But Little Rocks or Square Rocks, these gals must have their rocks. Diamonds on a girl's bed. 
Yes, <laughs> it was a great book. Greater is a Broadway stage hit, and even more gorgeous, glittering, and hilarious on the screen. With Marilyn Monroe as Lorelei Lee, the world's most fabulous gold-digging blonde. I just love finding new places to wear diamonds. And Jane Russell as Dorothy Shaw, the world's most talked-about brunette. Mr. Esmond and I are going to be married. To each other? Of course to each other. Who else to? Well, I don't know about you, Gus. I always sort of figured Lorelei would end up with the Secretary of the Treasury. My little angel, you don't even know there's a certain kind of gal would take advantage of a situation of this sort. May I, uh, may I kiss your hand? I always say a kiss on the hand feels very good, but a diamond tiara lasts forever. Bye-bye, baby. Remember you're my baby when they give you the eye. I like a beautiful hunk of man, but I'm no physical coach or fan. Ain't there anyone here for love? Men grow cold as girls grow old, and we all lose our charms in the end. But square cut or pear shape, these rocks don't lose their shape. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. Lee and her fiancé, Gus Edmund, are going to travel to France in order to get married. However, Gus's father disapproves of Lorelei, and he prevents them from going. Lorelei decides to go anyway, taking her best friend Dorothy Shaw along with her as a chaperone. Before their trip, Gus tells Lorelei to behave herself while in France, or his father might find out and prevent their marriage from ever happening. Sure enough, it turns out the old man has hired a detective by the name of Ernie Malone to watch her every move. While on the boat to Paris, Lorelei meets Sir Francis Piggy Beekman, owner of a diamond mine. Intrigued by him, she invites him back to the girls' cabin to flirt with him. Unbeknown to them, however, Ernie spies on them and takes pictures of them. Dorothy, whom Ernie is falling for, sees him and tells Lorelei. They concoct a scheme to take the film by drugging the detective and stealing it from him. However, their troubles are not over yet as the two girls soon run into money problems after their credit is cancelled. Let's run through the cast of this movie. We have Jane Russell as Dorothy Shaw, Marilyn Monroe as Lorelei Lee, Charles Coburn as Sir Francis Piggy Beekman, Elliot Reed as Ernie Malone, Tommy Noonan as Gus Edmund Jr., George Winslow as Henry Spofford III, Marcel Dalio as The Magistrate, Taylor Holmes as Mr Edmund Sr., Norma Varden as Lady Beekman, Howard Wendell as Watson, and Stephen Duray as the hotel manager. Gentlemen Prefer Blondes has a screenplay by Charles Lederer, was based on the Broadway musical Gentlemen Prefer Blondes by Anita Luz and Joseph Fields, and also the book Gentlemen Prefer Blondes by Anita Luz, and was directed by Howard Hawks. And Anita Luz was inspired to write the comic novel Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, The Intimate Diary of a Professional Lady, after an event on a train in early 1925. She was working as a film scriptwriter in Hollywood and, despite having to carry some heavy luggage, the men around her made no effort to help her. A young lady on the same train dropped the book that she was reading and several men jumped to get it back for her. Luz felt the stark difference in the men's behaviour was caused by the fact that Luz herself was a brunette and the other woman was a blonde. The plot of the book centres on the interactions of Lorelai Lee, a young blonde gold digger, it was published in 1925, the same year as Carl Van Vechten's Firecrackers and F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby, and is one of many well-known American books that emphasise the smug hedonism of the jazz age. Several authors, including F. Scott Fitzgerald, James Joyce, William Faulkner and H.G. Wells, praised the book. The character of Lorelei Lee personified the selfishness and self-indulgence that defined 1920s America, under the presidencies of Warren G. Harding and Calvin Coolidge, and it prompted Edith Wharton to acclaim Lou's satirical work as the great American novel. 
It became the second best-selling novel of 1926 after The Private Life of Helen of Troy by John Erskine. The book had been published in over 85 editions by the time Luz died of a heart attack in 1981 at the age of 93. It's also been turned into a comic strip in 1926, a 1928 silent comedy, a 1949 Broadway musical and this 1953 movie version. But Gentlemen Marry Brunettes, a sequel by Luz, was published in 1927. Years later, during a televised interview, Luz was asked if she planned to write a third novel. She joked in response, saying that the third book's title and subject matter would be Gentlemen Preferred Gentlemen. This would abruptly end that particular interview. The 1928 American silent comedy film, directed by Mal St. Clair, co-written by Anita Luz, based on the novel from 1925, was released by Paramount Pictures and it starred Ruth Taylor as Lorelai Lee and Alice White as Dorothy Shaw. No copies of this movie are known to exist and it is now considered to be a lost film. The 1949 Broadway musical ran for 740 performances at the Ziegfeld Theatre and it introduced Carol Channing as Lorelai and Yvonne Adair as Dorothy. The musical closed in September 1951. A London production was performed in the West End at the Princess Theatre in 1962 for 223 performances, starring Dora Bryan as Lorelai and Anne Hart as Dorothy. And there was a Broadway revival in 1995 at the Lyceum Theatre, starring Katie Sullivan as Lorelai and Karen Primzik as Dorothy. An adaptation called Lorelai, also starring Carol Channing, was performed on Broadway in 1974. Subtitled Gentlemen Still Prefer Blondes, it opened with the title character, a jewel-laden, very wealthy widow, about to set sail on the SS Ile de France. The moment reminds her of the past voyage she took with her best friend and fellow showgirl Dorothy, and in a flashback we relive their madcap adventures after Lorelai's plans to marry Gus Edmund are derailed by his father. Lorelai opened up Broadway at the Palace Theatre in January 1974 and closed in November 1974 after 321 performances. The songs created for the original Broadway musical, music by Jules Stein and lyrics by Leo Rubin, would also appear in the 1953 movie, but not all of them. A Little Girl from Little Rock was adapted for both Lorelai and Dorothy to sing together. Bye Bye Baby and Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend would also come over from the Broadway musical. But otherwise, new tracks would be written with music by Hoagy Carmichael and lyrics by Harold Adamson. So before we get into the 1953 movie that we're all here for, Let's take a trip down memory lane to the careers of Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe. Jane Russell is first billed on the movie because at the time she was the bigger star. Bob Hope once described her as the two and only Jane Russell. And I think you know where this is going. In 1940, she had been signed to a seven-year contract with Howard Hughes. And in 1941, she started making The Outlaw. And her voluptuous figure was front and centre in the production. Everything was done to emphasise her talents, shall we say, and it was her ample cleavage on display in promotional material that led to the outlaw becoming somewhat of a, it does what it says on the tin, by becoming an outlaw in Hollywood. The outlaw would fall foul of the Hayes Code for its lack of morally acceptable content. The Hayes Code was voluntary for film companies, but mandatory for filmmakers who wanted their films in American theatres. And the fact the Outlaw's marketing leaned so heavily on the beauty of Jane Russell and her ample bosom meant that it was denied a certificate of approval. Howard Hughes also famously designed an underwire bra for Russell to use during the filming of The Outlaw to accentuate her breasts. In her 1985 autobiography, Jane said that the bra was so uncomfortable that she discreetly threw it away and replaced it with her own bra padding the cups with tissue and pulling the straps up to lift her breasts. And Hughes was none the wiser, because men are dumb and also women are smart. After removing about 30 seconds of footage of Russell's cleavage from the film, 20th Century Fox reneged on its promise to release The Outlaw. Millions of dollars were on the line for Howard Hughes, but being the cunning businessman that he was, he devised a plan to spur public outrage for the banning of his movie. He had his managers make calls to women's clubs, housewives and preachers to let them know about the upcoming release of a quote-unquote lewd film. The public's response, which included protests and attempts to have the movie banned, gave Hughes the publicity he needed to create demand for the movie and get it distributed. And this was despite the movie itself being a fairly standard western. 
Hughes eventually persuaded Joseph Breen, the enforcer of the Hayes Code, that it did not break the code and the film could be shown, though without a seal of approval. After its release in 1943 was shut down by the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America after a week, the movie finally saw a wide release in 1946 and Jane Russell immortalised in the poster, which claimed the picture that couldn't be stopped only added to the public's fascination with Jane Russell. She was also a popular wartime pinup, and after the success of The Outlaw, which ended up grossing $5 million, Russell went on to have a box office hit with The Pale Face in 1948 and went to work solely with RKO Pictures after Howard Hughes bought the company in 1948 and was loaned to Paramount for Son of Pale Face in 1952. Russell's personal life had been pretty complicated up to this point. After a botched abortion made her infertile, she would become a mother through adoption in 1951 when she adopted her daughter Tracy domestically and then her son Thomas internationally from Ireland. The UK government, though, would step in and inform her that due to British law and Thomas being born in London and having dual Irish and British citizenship, that only British parents could adopt British children. The British government demanded that Jane Russell return the child to the UK, but she refused. She hired a barrister to defend his birth parents, who wished for Russell to adopt the child. It would take nine months for a judge to rule that Thomas could stay in the US and be legally adopted by Russell and her husband. The bureaucracy and red tape surrounding the adoption led to Russell founding the World Adoption International Fund, or WAIF, which she funded without government assistance. WAIF would officially be founded in 1955 after the Orphan Adoption Amendment of the Special Immigration Act of 1953 was passed in the US with the help of Eleanor Roosevelt. And so we move on to Marilyn Monroe. And I don't think I need to tell you who Marilyn Monroe is, because Marilyn Monroe. Isn't it pretty much everyone on earth knows? She is the quintessential Hollywood blonde, a starlet whose tragic story is as well known as her beauty. But her Hollywood career trajectory is incredibly impressive for someone who was, quote unquote, just a dumb blonde. Young Norma Jean Mortensen, she had a difficult start in life. She'd been in and out of orphanages and foster homes. She'd married at 16 in order to not return to an orphanage. As she dropped out of high school to become a housewife, her first husband, James Doherty, enlisted in the Merchant Marines and shipped out to the Pacific in 1944. To support the war effort, Norma Jean worked in a factory where she was photographed by David Conover and she began modelling in defiance of her husband. She quickly became one of her agency's most ambitious and hardworking models. By early 1946, she had appeared on 33 magazine covers for publications such as Pageant, US Camera, Laugh and Peak. She wanted to become an actress and signed a six-month contract with 20th Century Fox under Daryl F. Zanuck. And if you remember the episode on Reign of Fire, you'll remember Daryl F. Zanuck and his son from that particular episode. She was signed to that six-month contract with Fox in 1947 to avoid her being poached by rival studio RKO Pictures. It was here that Norma Jean became Marilyn Monroe, Marilyn after Broadway star Marilyn Miller, and Monroe after her mother's maiden name. She used her time at Fox to learn acting, singing and dancing and was given bit parts in Dangerous Years in 1947 and Scudder Who Scudder Hay in 1948. Despite enrolling in acting school, her teachers thought her too insecure and shy to become an actress. Fox didn't renew her contract and she was then signed by Columbia Pictures in 1948. At Columbia, Monroe's look was modelled after Rita Hayworth and her hair was bleached, her signature platinum blonde. She began working with the studio's head drama coach, Natasha Lightess, who would remain her mentor until 1955. Her only film at the studio was the low-budget musical Ladies of the Chorus in 1948. Shortly after leaving Columbia, she met and became the protégé and mistress of Johnny Hyde, the vice president of the William Morris Agency. Through Hyde, Monroe landed small roles in several films, including two critically acclaimed works, Joseph Mankiewicz's drama All About Eve in 1950 and John Huston's film noir The Asphalt Jungle in 1950. In December 1950, Hyde negotiated a seven-year contract for Monroe to return to 20th Century Fox and a few days after, he died of a heart attack. When Monroe made it known in the public that she had been in a nude calendar in 1949, she soon found herself at the centre of a scandal. In order to prevent damaging her career, the studio and Monroe 
thought it would be better to acknowledge the fact that she had once posed nude and that she was in a dire financial situation at the time and felt like she had no choice. Instead of damaging her reputation, the incident boosted popular sympathy for her and generated more interest in her films. To capitalise on her newfound status as the new It Girl of Hollywood, three of her films, Clash by Night, Don't Bother to Knock and We're Not Married, were released soon after, with Clash by Night and Don't Bother to Knock showcasing her acting talents in different genres of film. With increased public notoriety came increased pressure on Monroe, both personally and professionally. To alleviate her anxiety and chronic insomnia, she began to use barbiturates, amphetamines and alcohol, which also exacerbated her problems, although she did not become severely addicted until 1956. In 1953, three of Monroe's movies cemented her as the Hollywood sex symbol. Niagara, How to Marry a Millionaire, which was the fourth highest grossing movie of 1953, alongside Betty Grable and Lauren Bacall, and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, alongside Jane Russell. For several months, Hollywood fought to get film rights to Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Fox originally wanted the property for aforementioned Betty Grable, but Columbia negotiated for it as a vehicle for their blonde comedy queen, Judy Holliday. And Betty Grable actively sought out the role after understanding how crucial it would be to her then waning career. During Marilyn's unsuccessful run at the studio in the late 1940s, when many a blonde starlet was made in the mould of Grable, the actress with the million-dollar legs had been Fox's top box office draw. But ironically, Betty Grable's star was quickly being eclipsed by Marilyn Monroe's by 1952. The adaptation of Lou's novel was an idea before its time. The stereotypical dumb blonde showgirl, Lorelei Lee, just like Marilyn, is smart, but not obviously academically smart. Anita loses writing for her internal monologue, harshly lampoons men's desires to dominate women, censorship and the sexual pieties of the powers that be. Luz belonged to a jazz age writing generation that had a more progressive view of gender. So it's telling how contemporary the material still manages to sound in this movie and probably why this movie holds up so well with a modern lens. Production on Gentlemen Prefer Blondes began in November 1952. Jane Russell reportedly received $200,000 for her appearance compared to Marilyn's weekly salary of $1,500. And while Betty Grable might have cost Fox as much as $150,000, Monroe making roughly $18,000 for her involvement in the film meant that it was a more cost-effective solution for 20th Century Fox. Monroe did insist on having her own dressing room, though, since she realised she was being taken advantage of. She would say, quote, I am the blonde, and it is gentlemen prefer blondes, unquote. And Marilyn Monroe, although marketed as the typical dumb blonde, was anything but. She was wickedly smart, but she could never escape from the stereotype. For most of her short life, Marilyn acted dumb, because a smart woman does tend to be antagonistic to an industry ran by men. Lorelai's line in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, I can be smart when it's important, but most men don't like it, was allegedly written by Marilyn herself. And as a woman in a male-dominated work industry, the woman in a male-dominated podcast industry, I can relate. Marilyn had no formal education due to her fractured and difficult childhood. She had rumoured diagnoses of dyslexia and bipolar, and she was very sensitive about her lack of education. But to navigate Hollywood, be as astute about your image and how to market yourself, you have to be intelligent. But there are different types of intelligence, and Marilyn was also naive and childlike and easily taken advantage of. She was desperate for the love she craved as a child and married several times, each time only finding heartbreak and divorce. During the film's production, Marilyn and Jane Russell grew close and friendly, much to the dismay of the media who were anxious to report on the conflict between the two sex symbols. Nevertheless, there were some real issues with Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. The movie's filming marked a significant increase in Marilyn's propensity to arrive on set late. Whitey Snyder, her makeup artist, noticed that Marilyn had to gather her courage before the day's shooting since she was truly scared to be in front of cameras. Marilyn could never bring herself to walk onto the set, despite the fact that she frequently arrived at the studio an hour before Jane Russell would. Marilyn's tardiness caused a lot of tension in the production since director Howard Hawks, who was not known for accepting the shortcomings of actors, was not particularly happy. Jane Russell, who made it a point to visit Marilyn's dressing room each morning and accompany the terrified young star onto the set, 
was told by Whitey Snyder about his worries about Marilyn. Jane Russell realised that Marilyn was probably unable to handle the cruelties of show business and Russell not only knew of Marilyn's insecurities, but also the harsh, insensitive nature of the film industry, being, at the time, pretty much a veteran. And really, the closeness of the relationship between Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe really comes through on the screen. They were genuine friends. These were women who did genuinely support each other. And despite the fact that Marilyn's tardiness had earned Hawke's wrath, he couldn't condemn her for her lack of commitment. Marilyn's desire to put in a great deal of work impressed a lot of the cast and crew. She kept practising long after others had grown tired and asked for retakes of scenes that she thought needed improvement. She understood the reality. She had been handed a huge part in a widely renowned movie, a part that other, more reputable actors had sought out. And she was conscious that this was her moment to earn acclaim from the critics and gain some respect in the business. The results of Marilyn's efforts were a number of well-executed, spectacular production numbers in which she and Jane Russell, neither of whom were known for their singing or dancing abilities, shone in this movie. The stunning Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend by Marilyn would go on to become her signature song, showcasing her beauty and grace, while also capturing the young actress at the height of her powers. In retrospect, the number represents that brief but joyous period of time when Marilyn was in charge of her life and her destiny. And the history and legacy of Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend could probably have an episode all to itself, but the song with music by Jewel Stein and lyrics by Neo Robin remains a cultural milestone of cinema and of music. Sources have differed as to how much of the vocals are Marilyn's, and there have been small segments of the song attributed to dubbing by Gloria Wood and Marnie Nixon, but the vast majority of the song is in Monroe's voice. It's been referenced and covered by the likes of Madonna, Kylie Minogue, Megan Thee Stallion, and Normani and Miss Piggy. Daryl F. Zanuck actually signed an affidavit affirming that the voice on the soundtrack was indeed Marilyn Monroe's. But we can't talk about Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend without talking about that dress. And the adventures of Don Juan in 1948 had already earned William Travilla, known as Travilla, an Oscar when he started working with Marilyn Monroe. Travilla created the costumes for Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. He also created the costumes for Don't Bother to Knock in 1952, also starring Marilyn. He created one of the most famous costumes in all of film, the pleated ivory cocktail dress that Monroe wore in the 1955 film The Seven Year Itch. And all of the costumes in this movie are gorgeous. They fully take advantage of Technicolor. The colours, they're bold and bright. The fabrics are beautiful. It's a showcase not just for the work of the costume department, but for both Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe. But the famous pink dress for Diamonds was originally going to be very different. It was originally a breathtaking showgirl costume, costing close to $4,000, encrusted with jewels sewn onto the back, a fishnet body stocking up to the breasts, and then covered in nude fabric embellished with a mass of diamonds. But the aforementioned nude calendar controversy meant that the production decided on a less revealing dress for the number. Travilla was given strict instructions to design a new costume in order to distance Monroe from the scandal. He designed the pink dress as a last-minute replacement, two days before filming was due to begin. Two identical copies were used in the scene. It consists of shocking pink silk fabric. It's lined with black silk and satin. It is a strapless gown featuring black satin lining on the oversized bow attached to the back. It has an integral bra with a rear zipper closure concealed with the bow overlay. And it comes with opera-length gloves. Originally, the gloves and shoes were going to be black, but this was changed to match the pink of the gown. The jewels in the scene, they're not real diamonds, but just costume jewellery. Trevilla would say of the dress, quote, Apart from the two side seams, the dress was folded into shape rather like cardboard. Any other girl would have looked like she was wearing cardboard. But on screen, I swear you would have thought Marilyn had on a pale, thin piece of silk. Her body was so fabulous, it still came through, unquote. The only pink dress known to survive was auctioned at Profiles in History on the 11th of June 2010 with an estimated price of between $150,000 and $250,000 and was described as the most important film costume to ever come to auction. The dress ultimately sold for $370,000. It's since become a cultural icon revered in pop culture and imitated multiple times, most famously by Madonna in the music video for Material Girl. It was also referenced in Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge along with a different version of Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. 
and also in the movie Birds of Prey. There is a previous episode of this podcast on Birds of Prey. That is episode 70 of this podcast. Later, the song Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend was reshot in Cinemascope for use in a demonstration of the format that took place on the Fox lot in March 1953. According to producer Daryl F. Zanuck, shooting the number in Cinemascope only took three and a half hours, as opposed to four days for the original film version. Ten years later, the Cinemascope version was ultimately shown to the public at the conclusion of Fox's homage to Marilyn, but has never been made available on VHS, DVD or Blu-ray. One of the backing dancers in Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend was a young George Takiris, who would later go on to win an Academy Award for his performance in West Side Story. Both Jane Russell and assistant choreographer Gwen Verdon would state later that the iconic musical number wasn't actually directed by Howard Hawks, but by choreographer Jack Cole, and that Hawks had no interest in directing the musical numbers. Verdon coached both Marilyn and Russell on their walking and dancing, but she had to make Marilyn's less sexy and Jane's more sexy. And while Marilyn would eventually become notorious for causing difficulties during the production of her films, she did manage to work with some of Hollywood's most legendary directors in her brief career, actually working with some of them twice, including Howard Hawks, who had previously directed her in Monkey Business. And Gentlemen Prefer Blondes was a departure for Howard Hawks, because his films usually focused on men, or pairs of men, usually opposite but complementary. In Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, his lead characters are women, with opposite personalities, looks and desires. There is a distinct lack of leading men in this film, and the men that are shown are kind of hapless, weak-willed, nervous, henpecked, or a small child. Howard Hawks' particular sense of humour, Charles Lederer's incisive and funny screenplay, and Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe's specific dialogue and situations are just a few of the things that Howard Hawks brought to the production. The character of Henry Spofford III, played by George Winslow, was originally created as a love interest for Dorothy on stage, but this character was significantly redesigned by Lederer as an eight-year-old boy to add to the comedy. And in the Ain't There Anyone Here for Love scene, Dorothy Shaw is trying to flirt with the whole Olympic squad, one of whom is actually her brother Jamie as well. And this happens in the swimming pool and gymnasium of the cruise ship. In order for the dancers to dive over and around her into the water, Jane Russell was supposed to bow down at the edge of the pool. But in the movie, she falls in. And although it does appear to be on purpose, one of them accidentally clipped her on the head with his foot, causing her to fall into the water. And it was a total accident, and they had to go back and reshoot the whole number. But when Howard Hawks saw the dailies, he decided to keep it in the film. The dancer that accidentally hit Jane Russell was Ed Fury, and he would end up getting fired, but not for accidentally hitting her. The reason he was fired is because he then insisted on getting a co-choreography credit. The final day of filming was 22nd of January 1953, but it would take another six months before the film was released to the public. In the meantime, Marilyn was making her international film debut in the 1953 noir thriller Niagara, which was supported by a massive Fox Studios promotional campaign. This was Marilyn's first significant starring role, and if there was anyone left who hadn't heard of Marilyn Monroe by this point, they certainly had by now. As a testament to how popular Marilyn had become over the last 12 months or so, and as a tribute to Jane Russell's everlasting appeal and celebrated career, the two were invited to place their hands and feet in wet cement at the Grauman's Chinese Theatre on the 26th of June 1953 as promotion for the up-and-coming release of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And while, sadly, I am not a blonde, and I don't think highlights count, this is a great segue, it's not, but I'm pretending that it is, into this week's obligatory Keanu reference, which is where I try and link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. Because Keanu does have a girlfriend, unfortunately for me. And it does seem like Keanu, as a gentleman, does prefer blondes. Because while his girlfriend, Alexandra Grant, is a silver vixen now, it does appear that she was previously blonde. But as I'm going to come to, the sort of sequel to this movie is Gentleman Marry Brunette, so stay with a chance. So Gentlemen Prefer Blondes premiered on the 1st of July 1953 in Atlantic City before releasing wide in August 1953 in the US. On a budget of $2.3 million, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes would gross $5.1 million in the US and in total worldwide earned $5.3 million at the global box office. And critics gave the movie favourable reviews, even among critics who were unimpressed with the rest of the film. 
Monroe and Russell received plaudits for their portrayals of Lorelei and Dorothy, which led to the characters becoming part of popular culture. Although not everyone liked the film. According to Bosley Crowther of the New York Times, he thought the jokes for Russell were devoid of character or charm and also found Howard Hawke's direction to be uncomfortably cloddish and slow. But he added, quote, And yet there is that about Miss Russell and also about Miss Monroe that keeps you looking at them even when they have little or nothing to do, unquote. Seventy years after its release, according to contemporary criticism, the film is pioneering for its representation of female friendships and agency. Lorelai and Dorothy remain steadfast in support of each other throughout the movie, with Dorothy quite willing to break the law for her friend at the end. And while it was never nominated for any major awards, it would be nominated for a Reuters Guild of America Award for Best Written Musical, although it would lose out to the film Lily. And as I mentioned, a pseudo-sequel of sorts, Jane Russell would return in 1955's Gentleman Marry Brunettes, playing a totally different character alongside Jean Crane as sisters Bonnie and Connie Jones. It was loosely based on Anita Lou's sequel, but Gentleman Marry Brunettes. The reason for this change was that the characters of Lorelai Lee and Dorothy Shaw were owned by 20th Century Fox, who were not involved in the production. The book was a sequel to Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, but the movie kind of wasn't. And it didn't do as well at the box office as its predecessor, making only $1.5 million on its $2 million budget. A third movie, based on a proposed but never finished story by Anita Luz, called Gentleman Slug Redheads, was put forward by Gentleman Mary Brunette's director Richard Sale, but ultimately never materialised. What has materialised, though, are social media thoughts. And we're going to start with the patrons of this podcast, the wonderful patrons of this podcast, and we're going to start with Simon, who says, Fantastic. One of my favourite feel-good movies. Fantastic performances from Monroe and Russell. Looks gorgeous in a classic Hollywood way. Big improvement on an already entertaining book. And of course, the musical numbers. Huge, dramatic and massively camp. It even has one in a gym where all the backing dancers, including Jane Russell's brother, are male bodybuilders in tiny shorts. Diamonds are a girl's best friend is a classic for a reason, with Madonna paying tribute decades later. French and Saunders also did a pastiche of two little girls from Little Rock. It's also interesting that it comes from the absolute misogyny of the golden age of Hollywood, but there isn't a male lead. It's Lorelai and Dorothy front and centre and in control. There's some dialogue gems too. You'll find that I mean business. Really? Then why are you wearing that hat? It's a joy from beginning to end and a stone cold classic. And as always, patrons of this podcast, if they have a podcast themselves, I will give a little plug to their podcast. And Simon has several podcasts. So he's the co-host of the Exton Moss Experiment, as well as the Tonic Screwdriver and Oral Intercourse. He also owns his own production company, Maverick Productions. Basically, he's completely committed to providing excellent podcasts, as well as having the honour and privilege of being the very first patron of Verbal Diorama. So basically, if you like older British TV shows or gin, then you cannot go wrong with any of Simon's podcasts. We also have a patron comment from Ali who says, The luminous Marilyn and Jane make a great team in this comedy. The film has many elements of old school, bat bleep craziness. I always feel sorry for the dancers strapped to that candelabra in Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, but the leads just shine on screen. Perennial commenter Andy returns for his comment, which is, Ah, the timeless tale of a girl who proves she's willing to do anything, and I mean anything to live her dream as a starlet in Hollywood. Oops, wait, wrong movie. I was confusing it with Blonde's Preferred Gentleman, which has a less than savoury reception. I don't know what that is. I assume it's a naughty movie. I'm not going to look it up. Anyway, Gentleman Preferred Blondes is quite the breakout for Marilyn Monroe, building the foundation for the eternal starlet. Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend is a musical number so iconic it's taken on a life of its own, and you have to remind yourself which movie it was in. While I prefer her work closer to the end of her too short career, Some Like It Hot is a personal favourite, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes does stand out as the North Star to Marilyn's success. And regular listeners of this podcast should know by now that Andy also has his own podcast. It is called Geek Salad and it is basically a haven for everything and anything geek, whether that's movies, music, TV shows, games, whatever, wherever you can find it on Geek Salad. As with Simon's podcast, I will put a link in the show notes for Geek Salad. And the final picture comment comes from Brett, who says, I remember watching this as a kid and immediately falling in love with Marilyn Monroe. Such talent that ended too quickly. 
Iconic scenes, great songs, and memorable performances that stand out compared to a lot of other movies from the 50s. And Brett also has podcasts. It is called Dissect That Film. It is with Dan and Angela, and they do movie retrospectives, new releases, TV show discussions as well. It is an excellent podcast and very well worth your time. I will also put some information for Dissect That Film in the show notes. Moving on to Twitter. And we're going to start with at a nightmare pod. And this is Lorraine. And Lorraine says, Great film. These two light up the screen. I find Marilyn Monroe mesmerising. You just can't take your eyes off of her. Another great classic and one of my favourite films, All About Eve, if you like the classics. We don't see much in the way of oldies. Nice to see them included. At Bitchin Boutique said, I wrote a paper in college on the use of women as props in the Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend scene, but that was in 1990. Laughing emoji. At Kid Creole 3 said, I saw this for the first time a few weeks ago. Colours pop, a delight from start to finish. At Spesh Magic Lady said, Bye Bye Baby is a perennial earworm. At Alice Taylor M said, This whole scene and number is superb. Also, Monroe really shows off her comedic chops. Her timing and delivery is unparalleled. At Bergfan004 said, I've always been more of a Jane Russell fan between the two in this anyways. And the Paul Fall error that they decide to keep in is classic. At the underscore film underscore B said, It's quite fun, some good musical numbers, but I just found the characters very superficial and a little bit annoying. Still, they certainly don't make musicals that way nowadays. At Thief CGT said, It's one I've been meaning to watch. I've only seen a couple of Monroe films, but she really had a unique presence. At the digressor said, I saw it like 20 years ago. Don't remember anything except it was my introduction to Monroe. It may just not be as popular as some of her other films. I've seen some like it hot twice and would have comments on that one. And at Why Not Pod said, It's been so long since I've seen it that I honestly can't remember much about it or my thoughts of it. Definitely need to give it a rewatch though. And at Holmes Movies Pod said, It's a real classic. The music and comedy are great. All the musical sequences are brilliant. Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe have genuine chemistry and they're really fun to watch. One of Howard Hawke's memorable and best films showed he could work and make films in multiple genres. There are no comments on Instagram or Facebook this time, but as always, a huge thank you to everyone for your comments on Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And if you do want your comments read out on episodes, the thoughts posts go up on a Friday on social media, at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, etc., and all you need to do is comment on the post and I will include it in the next episode. And I feel like this episode has been very focused on Marilyn Monroe, but there's a reason for that. And she's always going to be this eternally fascinating screen icon. A tragic story, dying far too young, the mystery surrounding her death, the conspiracy theories around it. She's a woman we still talk about because we never really knew her. Plenty of people over time have purported to know her true story but the only one who ever did was Marilyn herself. Hollywood will continue to milk the Marilyn cash cow for all it's worth, and it's sad that this is one screen icon who has no control over her image or story, but it feels like she does in this movie. It's easy to see this movie as just a story about two social climbing showgirls, and that this is a movie predominantly in the male gaze. It's easy to say that it's sexist and shallow without ever watching the full thing, especially if Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend is the only thing that you know about this movie. Yes, Lorelai Lee wants to marry for money. Yes, she's obsessed with diamonds and riches. And yes, her fiancé happens to be incredibly wealthy. But she's no dumb blonde. As she says to Mr Esmond Sr, if you had a daughter, wouldn't you rather she didn't marry a poor man? You'd want her to have the most wonderful things in the world and to be very happy. Well, why is it wrong for me to want those things? It would be simple to dismiss Lorelei as merely a gold digger. Yet she seeks access and influence in a society where money is king. She's honest about her goals and does not let what people may think of her behaviour alter her course of action. Both Dorothy and Lorelei are feminine. They use their charms to get their way, but they also own their own sexuality. And this seems remarkably ahead of its time in 1953. They always have total control, they support each other wholeheartedly, and Dorothy was appreciating thirst traps before it became cool. Dorothy tells it like it is. She's opinionated and brash, and she sexually objectifies men, not the other way round. 
Lorelai's boyfriend informs her towards the end of the movie that she must change if she wants to keep their relationship going. But she states categorically that this is the kind of woman that she is and he's free to take her or leave her. Women shouldn't have to change for a man. And if that's not the ultimate in feminism, then I don't know what is. Gentlemen Prefer Blondes is a witty social satire on gender and class that also serves as a celebration of female ingenuity and solidarity, whilst also being decked out in beautiful ball gowns and sparkling diamonds. It is a love story, but not in the traditional sense, because it puts female friendship front and centre and remains one of the best buddy comedies of cinema. Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe are electric together. Their friendship is obvious, they're flawless, they've got pitch-perfect comedic timing. And the reason the story still resonates with us now may be because it demonstrates that just because you're highly feminine, playful, that you love beautiful things, that's not mutually exclusive with intelligence. Not to mention, like The Wizard of Oz, it takes full advantage of technical filmmaking. This movie is gorgeous. It sounds gorgeous. It looks gorgeous. Everything about this movie is gorgeous. Diamonds may be a girl's best friend, but so is the woman who will impersonate you in front of a judge to exonerate you for quote-unquote sealing a diamond tiara. Fact. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on gentlemen prefer blondes. And just by listening to this podcast, you are supporting this podcast. And thank you so much for your time, for your ears, and for your hearts and thoughts and whatever you want to give this podcast at this particular time you're listening. But if you do want to help this podcast grow and be seen by others, you could leave a rating or review wherever you found this podcast. You can also retweet or like posts on social media. I am at Verbal Diorama. You can follow me on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Letterboxd. And the other thing you could do is tell your friends and family about this podcast, especially if they're a fan of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Jane Russell or Marilyn Monroe. I really genuinely wish I could go more into the incredible careers of Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe. Unfortunately, this is an episode on this movie, so I can't. But one day I will get back to more Marilyn Monroe and hopefully more Jane Russell as well, because both women are fascinating. And if you like this episode on Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, you might also like the following movies slash episodes of this podcast. And look, we're going to go on a journey with this, so bear with me. The first episode I'm going to recommend to you is episode 21, Legally Blonde, because Elle Woods is also blonde and she's also not dumb. And it goes against those blonde stereotypes. It's a wonderful comedic treasure. There's actually a lot of similarities there between Reese Witherspoon's performance and Marilyn Monroe's performance as well. Honestly, Legally Blonde is such a fantastic movie. It genuinely is one of my favourites. Episode 51, Down With Love. Now, Down With Love is based more on the no-sex comedies of the 1960s than anything from the 1950s. But it's so perfectly done from the Technicolor-esque filmmaking to a wonderful performance by another blonde, Renee Zellweger, who is truly terrific in that movie. And if you do like movies from the 50s and 60s, guarantee you will love Down With Love. It is a truly wonderful movie. So I've got a great Ewan McGregor performance in there as well. And it's a very highly underrated modern comedy. And total curveball. But I'm going to go with episode 69, Atomic Blonde, because Charlize Theron is also blonde in the movie. It's completely different to this movie because it is a full-on spy action movie. But honestly, it's great. Please watch Atomic Blonde. It is truly brilliant. It's got a great soundtrack as well. And literally anything you can watch with Charlize Theron, you know it's going to be well worth your time. Obviously, give me feedback. Let me know what you thought of my recommendations. So the next episode, I said I was going to be focusing on women in film. And I'm going to be carrying on this theme of movies about strong, intelligent, resilient women in episode 204, because this is actually a true story. And it's a story not many of us actually knew about until the movie came out. And that is the true story about three African-American women's involvement in the space race of the 1960s. So coming next on the podcast is the movie Hidden Figures. And I'm so excited to be talking about Hidden Figures because this was a movie that for me came out of nowhere. And as soon as I saw the movie, I just fell in love with it completely. It's got some wonderful performances. 
from Taraji P. Henson, Octavia Spencer and Janelle Monet. So please join me next week for the history and legacy of Hidden Figures. And as I said, just by listening to this podcast for free, you are supporting this podcast for free. But if you do want to give a little bit of money to help this podcast with new equipment and subscriptions and other things to hopefully make this podcast better for everyone, then you can join the Patreon. You can go to verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon and you can join the following amazing patrons of Verbal Diorama. Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kat, Andy, Mike, Luke, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Sam, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart, Sully, Drew, Nicholas, Zoe, Kev, Pete, Heather, Danny, Ali, Tyler, Stu, Brett and Philip. A kiss on the hand may be quite continental, but patrons are a girl's best friend. You can check out my merch store. It's verbaldiorama.com slash merch. You can get in touch with me by email at verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can say hi, you can give me feedback, or you can pop over to verbaldiorama.com and fill out the little contact me form. You can also see my work at filmstory.co.uk. You can check out the magazine I write for and the articles that I write on the web as well. And finally... Father, I love her. I love her very much. I've never had a feeling oh, like shut this. up. Young lady, you don't fool me one bit. I'm not trying to, but I bet I could, though. No, you might convince this jackass that you love him, but you'll never convince me. That's too bad, because I do love him. Certainly, for his money. No, honestly. Have you got the nerve to stand there and expect me to believe that you don't want to marry my son for his money? It's true. Then what do you want to marry him for? I want to marry him for your money. Fair. Oh, Lorelei. Don't you see? That's why we have to have his consent, silly. Well, at least we're getting down to brass tacks. You admit that all you're after is money. No, I don't. Aren't you funny? Don't you know that a man being rich is like a girl being pretty? You might not marry a girl just because she's pretty, but my goodness, doesn't it help? And if you had a daughter, wouldn't you rather she didn't marry a poor man? But I was... You'd want her to have the most wonderful things in the world and to be very happy. Oh, why is it wrong for me to want those things? Well, I concede that... Say, they told me you were stupid. You don't sound stupid to me. I can be smart when it's important, but most men don't like it, except Gus. He's always been interested in my brains. No. No, that much of a fool he's not. Bye. Hey there, classmates. Tune in to Middle Class Film Class every Monday and Wednesday for weekly movie news, streaming picks, and one deep dive review. The Batman trailer. There was a teaser. There was a trailer. Trailer one, trailer two. Final trailer? I don't know if it's the same one. How many trailers do we need exactly? Leave an email or a voicemail to join in the discussion. Bullshit artist! Uh, <laughs> yeah, buddy! All That's right. awesome. You're going full Danzig. That's right, I am. My, my trans yeah, has no power, power over me. me. <laughs> <laughs>